Hey, you guys, I want to let you know about Book of the Month, an exciting service that helps readers discover great new books while also promoting the work of emerging authors. Every month, the editorial team at Book of the Month reads through hundreds of new titles. They do the curating for you. They narrow it down to five to seven of the best new books on the market, and you get to choose your Book of the Month. To sign up, just visit bookofthemonth.com. And for a limited time, you can get your first book for just $9.99 by using the offer code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. I should add that Book of the Month recently launched curated audiobooks in addition to hardcovers, so members have options. You can choose one or the other, either the hardcover edition or the audiobook. And if you pick the audiobook, you can download it and listen to it right there in the Book of the Month app. My latest pick is a novel called Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez. It tells the story of a forgotten art star of the 1980s who died tragically and whose life and work and memory are later unearthed by an art history student. This is right up my alley. I can't wait to read it. So if you want to sign up for Book of the Month, remember, go to bookofthemonth.com and for a limited time, Get your first book for just $9.99 by using the code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. One more time, that's bookofthemonth.com. Use the code CHIRP and get reading. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hey, you guys. Happy New Year. Today's episode is brought to you by Tweaked Audio. Do you need some new earbuds? Do you need some new headphones? TweakedAudio.com is where you need to go. And when you go there, please enter the promo code OTHERPEOPLE, O-T-H-E-R-P-P-L, O-T-H-E-R-P-P-L. You enter that promo code, you get 33% off of any purchase at TweakedAudio.com, purveyor of fine earbuds and headphones, all kinds of styles, all kinds of colors. TweakedAudio.com, enter the promo code O-T-H-E-R-P-P-L. These are earbuds. These are headphones. You can listen to things with them. Go and get some. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host... Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Right. Everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is me having an episode in public. This is the first episode of 2016. How's it going out there? Happy New Year once again. I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles, California, back in uh, in the garage, back in front of the microphone after the holidays. I hope you had a good uh, holiday season. Hope you had a good Christmas. Hope you had a good New Year. Hope you had a good Hanukkah. Did your family drive you crazy? Did you see your family? Do you have any family? Were you suicidal? Have you made it through? Are you hanging on by a thread? I don't know what to say. Except continue to hang on. Just hang on. I don't want to get overly therapeutic. It's over. It's the new year. Did you make resolutions? Did you hit the ground running? Have you read four books already? Because this is going to be the year when everything changes. Did you get a gym membership? Did you do yoga? You've been drinking green juice. 
Have you done none of the above? Do you just not give a shit? I've done some of that stuff. I've been reading. I've ha- I have to read. I don't even know if I can say this. I, I, I shouldn't mention it. I have an obligation requiring me to read. I'll put it that way. So that's been forcing my hand. But it's been nice. And anyway, I want to read more in 2016. That is one of my resolutions. Uh, so let's see. What did I do over the break? I had family in town. That's why I took the break, P.S. Usually uh, in past years, I have not uh, taken a break. But this year, both of my sisters came out, nieces, nephew. Uh, it was just chaos. And uh, I thought, why, you know, why, why try to shoehorn an episode in when most people are on break anyway? So I hope that wasn't too much of an inconvenience. It's good to it's good to be back. I enjoyed my holiday. I'm glad my holiday is over. There's a lot of kids. I just get to a point. I reach a threshold, as I think a lot of you know, where the holiday music and uh, the crowds and all of it just becomes a bit much. The only thing as a holdover that I could live with is the tree. I could have a Christmas tree and white Christmas lights in my house and on my house 20, or 365 days a year, 24-7. I like a Christmas tree as an aesthetic choice in my ro- in my living room. I like my living room better with a tree. And I've talked to my wife recently. I'm like, can we just keep this? Let's just keep it. Fuck it. Let's be weird. Let's have a Christmas tree all year round in our living room. I don't know if she's going to go for that. It's El Nino in Los Angeles right now. So it's, uh, it's coming. It's been rumored uh, to be on its way for... Uh, many months. And now, as we turn the corner into 2016, it seems to be officially here. It's been raining. It, you know, I've been through El Ninos before. This feels like an El Nino. It's going to rain several days over the next week, which is obviously not the norm for Los Angeles. And uh, it's now kind of a wet cold in Los Angeles, you know, cold in the context of LA. So like mid fifties, but you know, with the rain, it's chilly. I'm in the, in the garage wearing my long wool coat, have uh, two hoods on, I want you to be able to imagine me. Two hoods on, long wool coat, headphones over the hood. It's that kind of thing. Just to be able to uh, execute my job as the host of this program. My guest today is Chiwan Choi. He's the author of two poetry collections. The first is called The Flood. That's available from Tia Chucha Press. And uh, the second collection is called Abductions. That one available from Chiwan Choi's very own Writ Large Press, based right here in Los Angeles, California. Writ Large Press, I should add, uh, has published a variety of titles, uh, including one recently from Wendy Ortiz. That is called Hollywood Notebook. Wendy, of course, has been a guest on this program back in episode 312. So check that out. Uh, what else did I, What else can I tell you? Oh, I saw Star Wars. I finally saw Star Wars. It was kind of this drama. It was like a weird internal psychodrama for me over the holidays. I just wanted to see Star Wars. There's a lot of movies I want to see, but I just wanted to tick that box. I'm not a huge Star Wars nerd, but I did want to see it, especially after reading the reviews. Uh, I wasn't too caught up in the hype. I'm not somebody who dresses up like a stormtrooper. It's not that, but those movies did mean something to me as a kid. They were probably the predominant myth or uh, mythology of my childhood when it comes to uh, narrative fiction of any kind and so I wanted to see how it was done I had heard good things and uh, it was just very complicated getting to the theater for a couple of reasons first of all young children being a parent uh, being tethered to them not being able to break away feeling bad about leaving them with my parents 
uh, you know, all that stuff. And then secondly, it was the holidays and it's Southern California and the theaters are crowded. So if you don't get your tickets like a day in advance, you're not going or you're sitting like in the first row, which is uh, absolutely intolerable to me. I cannot sit anywhere near the screen when I go to see a movie. I'd rather not go. Can't take it. I need to be in the back. I need to be able to see the full screen without turning my head. Gives me a headache to be in the front. And I also won't go see it in 3D. I don't need IMAX. I don't need 3D. I don't need it. It's enough. I don't need lasers coming at my face. I just don't need it. I don't need an X-Wing fighter screaming at me. Like directly at my forehead. I get it. Like I'm in space. I get it. Plus, it's just a distraction. Like, I find 3D to be very distracting. It also gives me a headache and occasionally induces light uh, nausea. I think the last movie I saw was that James Cameron movie uh, where everybody's blue. What the, I forget the name of it. Big hit. I saw it in 3D. I walked out. I felt uh, a little dizzy and just had a headache. I don't need it. it. Takes me out of the film. That's the thing. That's really the thing. If it took me deeper into the film, I would I would take the nausea. I'd puke. I don't care. If it made the made the experience more immersive, but it actually does the opposite for me. I don't it's not more immersive to me. Maybe someday the technology will you know will be perfected to the point where you're in the world and it's a 3D experience and you feel like you're actually walking around with blue people or uh, Han Solo or whatever the case may be, but for now it's distracting to me. I don't smoke enough pot for 3D to be interesting to me. I don't need to be like, you know, I'm not stoned at IMAX 3D. That's what it's for. 3D is for stoned people and for like 7th grade boys. Otherwise, forget about it. I didn't do anything for New Year's Eve. I don't care. End of story. Period. Full stop. Done. It's 2016. It's arbitrary. Let's move on. I think I read... I was trying to count because everyone's like talking about the books they read last year. I got into a lot of that. These are the books that I read last year. And I find my, I found myself very jealous and a little bit uh, ashamed comparing my list to the list of others. These people who have read like 70 books in a year and things like that. Uh, I think I, if I counted, I probably read like 12 books last year. Maybe more. I don't know. Like part of it was that I just couldn't remember. So that was depressing. It's like a, you know, premature senility or something. I had no idea what I read. I don't keep track. I didn't keep a list. I forgot, probably forgot entire books that I read that meant something to me as I was reading them. And then as soon as I put them down, just like disintegrated in my mind, just like vaporized and just like whistled off into oblivion. Uh, so there's that part of it. And then secondly, just not having the time or the discipline, spending too much time online, spending too much time on Netflix, spending too much time doing God knows, you know, God knows what, when I could be reading a book and uh, improving myself, nourishing myself. So that's part of you. Know, that's part of the strategy, more slow food, more paper books, more books generally in 2016. My guest today is Chiwan Choi. Uh, very pleased to have him here. I feel like I should have had him here a long time ago. 
Uh, I know him a little bit. He is uh, right here in Los Angeles, and his latest poetry collection is called Abductions, and uh, his press is called Writ Large. Here he is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Chiwan Choi. Like, there was a logic that I read from you in an interview or a profile or something where you sort of explained your decision to retire from poetry. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Why don't I let you explain what prompted it? Um, I think it was multiple things. I think I was at the tail end of, like, doing book tour when Abductions came out. I think I did, like, 50 readings that year, and I was just tired. Yeah. Um, at the same time, it was this feeling of, like, what is a book? You know, what's the point of writing something because you want people to read it, then putting it in a thing that has a value, necessary value to it, that people won't be able to buy. So it's like, what's the point of writing stuff so people read it and then putting it in a vessel that prevents some people from reading it? Right, right. <laughs> and it just made no sense because it's also, it's not like someone's giving giving me a six-figure advance for a poetry book. Right. So, so I just couldn't get, I just needed to figure out what that, what that was about. So best way to do that was just to stop. And, but then to also turn to the internet. Yeah, and then just write stuff on Facebook as as Facebook status. But as poetry? I was just writing. It wasn't anything. It was just writing. I guess you could call it poetry. I just called it Facebook status. Yeah, because it was funny. Because it was funny because it was like your bio was like, you know, Chiwan Choi has published two collections of poetry and has now retired to focus on updating his Facebook. Yeah. And that was it. Yeah. And how, and long, how long did you do that for? And how? Uh, over a year. Oh, a year and a half, maybe. And daily. Every day? Every day, multiple times. And... Funny thing was, people would constantly ask, what is this a part of? Like, they needed it to be a part of something. Right. Like, like some bigger thing I was working on. I'm like, just my Facebook status. <laughs> Have you ever thought about going back and, like, peeling them out and, like, publishing um, them in some other form? I've thought about it. And I'm, I'm sure a lot of those things have, like, snuck in into things I'm writing on in now. Yeah. Like the stuff I'm working on. Did, did you feel that like there was a freedom to it? Did your writing improve by virtue of the fact that you weren't considering it for publication? Did it loosen up some bolt in your brain? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think at that time I needed it. It wasn't even about like I was writing better things. I just needed to write without feeling like I was putting something together. Yeah. Uh, it was really something I absolutely needed at the time. Well, And it's just like writing for the the fun of writing. Yeah, and I had probably more readership than I've ever had. <laughs> but that's the, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, yeah. that's the thing. And I've, I've said this many times on this show is that poetry seems to me like the literary form that is best suited to the Internet yeah. and social media. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it feels like because poetry tends to have a harder time finding a readership in the world of traditional publishing, yeah, um, that maybe the Internet could be a place where that could flip a little bit. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, the last couple of years I've seen some amazing poetry books come out, like more than at any time in my life. And I'm so excited by it. Uh, but at the same time, I know they're not making a living just from selling these books. So it's like, okay. I mean, the writing would have been incredible whether it was in this book or not. And um, for those who get the big awards... It, it makes sense that it's in a, it's in a book because it now gives them leverage and all this access. But what if it's an amazing book that doesn't win awards? Yeah. Then where are you as a writer? 
Well, what's the and so okay? So what are the options? Because I feel like maybe there could be creative ways for a poet to leverage digital and to leverage live performance and to leverage YouTube videos and all these different media right, right. to try to build an audience and potentially try to monetize their work and create some sort of revenue stream. Like, are these things as a poet that you think about, or do you feel like that's too I, tiring? I think about it a lot. Just, I mean, for me and also for other poets, because we're not even just poets that we publish, but poets that who are friends or whose work I like and I want to help in any way. Like, um, so I do think about ways in which, how can people make money? Things like that. But don't we all? Yeah, it's never a straight answer because, you know, yeah, you can monetize it through YouTube and all this stuff, but that's full-time job. I know. That's the thing about it. That's the thing about it, though, is yeah. that I say all this. It's a hell of a lot of work. Yeah. I mean, just to maintain. And it seems like you have to keep feeding the beast. Like, you can put these things up, and I guess if you put up 10 videos and they all go, like, mega viral, then right. potentially, you know, you could be generating money on that for a long time if it just keeps, you know, people keep playing these things over and over again. but. And how do you game that? And then right, otherwise, right. in order to build, you have to keep producing videos. They have to be good. Yeah, and it's not just the hours. It's just a lot of people. It just doesn't fit their personality. Right. So, and then it just adds more stress. Like, <laughs> I suck at getting my book out, and I suck at YouTube. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's the thing, is that, like, you can feel, you can feel deficient or, like, handicapped in um, a really significant way if you're not somebody who's really good at social media or good at the internet. And like, there mm -hmm. are some people who are just really good at the internet and there are some people who are not. And it feels like in today's publishing climate, unless you're one of the uh, rare few, you know, who are able to sell books, you know, regardless, you know, you have yeah. a, a recognition or whatever, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you're the, the, you're in that little like, you know, elite club or whatever, then you're online and you're, in some sort of weird competition for eyeballs in an internet environment. And if the internet isn't something you take to, then it's like you're shit out of luck. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> and also like is being good at the internet and being a good writer or a good writer of literature, the same thing? No, I think it's just a skill set. You know, it's, it's some people are amazing poets and pretty spectacular at, dealing with social media and all these things right they just happen to have that skill set and it's a and you can make a career or at least add to your career right it can be yeah you can yeah. create a, you can create like some sort of brand or like personal yeah you can persona. go on like college reading circuit which you know i mean there's less money but there's still some money for poets to come in and read and yeah like teach a class or something um but some people like they write incredible things, but they don't want to leave the house. I mean, this is true of any artist, I guess. Sure. It's like some people, some musicians don't want to tour. <laughs> That's right. They just want so, to be studio musicians yeah, and yeah, stay yeah. home and, you know, make the music in their basement, which a lot of them do nowadays, right? Yeah, yeah. You can record, you know, the, the equipment isn't isn't inaccessible in the way that it used to be. Right, right. Um, so where do you fall? Um, I think all those things, like... I think less about the money side of this career as more I've been thinking more about what it is am I doing what is this what is writing what is what does what's a book what's a book 
Um, so I, I'm right now. It's just been focusing on figuring out what all those things are for me. And what? Okay. So what is it? I mean, what what are you doing? <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, it's weird being a writer and a publisher. It's like and you your uh, imprint is writ large. Yeah, writ large press. We just put out Wendy Ortiz's book. Sure, that was yeah. the last thing we put. Um, a Hollywood Notebook. Yeah. Um, it was, it's been this thing of like, well, if we wanted to get into business of selling something, there are easier things to sell than a book. No shit. <laughs> so why then do we do this? You know, is the book just the product we're slinging? Um, and if it's not, then what is the bigger reason? So the last few years we've been really, this has forced us to into live events a lot. Um, that doesn't even involve books that we publish. But trying to see what happens when you put a book or a writer or some sort of art in some public context, like do pe what does that mean to the people around it, to the community around it, and all this stuff. So we've been looking at the... We were looking at the book sort of as like, um, like a social contract between author and reader. Like it's almost like this is... The book is the evidence that a relationship occurred between writer and reader. And looking at it that way, it has helped me sort of like as a writer, then go, okay, what do I want to experiment with next? And also, like, what are the, what are the writer's obligations to a reader? Right, 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 right. You know, like if like you're asking somebody to spend the time with the book and to read the book and to buy the book. Yeah. I mean, what are you trying to deliver? And like... Uh, you know, I, I guess like when it comes to poetry, for example, uh, like where do you fall in terms of the question of accessibility? You know, how um, opaque or difficult the language can sometimes be in certain uh, poetry, you know, and right. then when you're balancing that against the, the desire to communicate with another human being. Yeah. Like, how hard do you make them work to understand or to get at the meaning? You know, whether it's the meaning they ascribe to it themselves from their POV or the meaning that you're trying to convey. Like, all these questions can kind of uh, make things a little bit foggy. And I, I think that, you know, obviously there are poets who, you know, take a more direct tack. There are other poets who, you know, the difficulty of the language is part of the fun. Like, where where are you on that? Oh, uh, I mean, my, I, as a reader... I'll read all kinds of stuff, and I don't. I know what I have a preference for, um, but I could appreciate a lot of different. As a writer, I don't like to write in many different ways because it's like, okay, this is how I write. This is what I'm going to write. Sure. Um, yeah, I think. I think going back to the lack of, I don't know, career options as a poet has really skewed it toward either super academic or super YouTube friendly. Right. Right. Um, I have all kinds of issues with this. It's, I mean, um, like everybody's writing to have, like, it's almost like everybody's writing to get their books inside a college classroom, which means it has to appeal to college professors which means it will tend to skew that way. But I mean, that also a certain mean, aesthetic doesn't it, a certain aesthetic, but also certain cultural yeah. um, predispositions. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, you know, like yeah. the, there's a lot that goes into the word academic. 
Yeah, you know? exactly, exactly. So, so it's not just like experimental writing in the sense of academic. It's more like, you know, I, I've been I've been shit on by both like white people and Asian people for not being Asian enough in my writing. <laughs> really? Yeah. So it's like it's also thematic too, you know, like. You know, my parents didn't own a liquor store. What the fuck do you want me to tell you? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> different people. trajectory. That's not what I want to write. Right? Uh, but yeah, so it's a funny thing. Uh, um, is there a middle ground? Is that the, is that what you're trying to explore? Like in between the YouTube and academia polarities, or? Yeah, it's not so much about middle ground, but just trying to say everything is okay. You don't have to force. Like you can't. Each side will validate one thing or another. Yeah. But, you know, it's, I don't know if it's uh, growing up in L.A., sort of outside of academia or the shadows of Ivy League schools or some shit, but it's, that just never appealed to me. Right. So. That just feels feels restrictive. Yeah. Who wants to be creative? I mean, I guess yeah. that there, there is like, I understand the notion that being creative in a, uh, a, a limited situation, like, for instance, like you're writing, uh, for network television and you can't mm -hmm. use cuss words and you can't do certain things sexually or you know what I'm saying? Like, right. Sometimes that can be in a weird way, interesting because right. you have these limitations within which you have to work. Right. Um, but just generally speaking as a creative person, like who wants to start from a place of restrictiveness? Right. You know, like, okay, yeah. these possibilities are closed off. Like that doesn't sound fun. Yeah. 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 I, this is not to say when I like, like when I'm working with a student on their poetry, like I will make them write all those things just because I want them to like flex all their muscles. Sure. Um, but it's like, why I, it is infuriating whenever there's like a list, you know, it's that time of year, so there's always a fucking list. <laughs> they, they drive me up the fucking Yeah, and then everybody's like a college professor. I can't stand them. <laughs> I don't read any of them. Yeah. All I, the, like, especially like, yeah, yeah, all the, all the books are written by people who are faculty somewhere, you know, and it's like, come on. It, it, it also, too, uh, I don't want to paint too, with too broad of a brush. And it's also just natural human tendencies. You know, we help our friends. But yeah. when you are paying attention to publishing and you start to get to know people, you see a lot of like, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. You see a lot of oh, these yeah. lists. It's like, oh, they all know each other and they're putting each other on their lists. And Yeah, it's fucking gross. <laughs> <laughs> it's gross. It's really gross. But it's like, you know, it's like, I don't know, I guess to the to the undiscerning eye, you would never know this, but there's a lot of that that happens. And I, I think it's probably the same way in all professions. Probably. Yeah. I, mean, I think the less money there is out there, the more it will be that way because that one of the only options for a poet to make some sort of dent or some sort of money or recognition is to get recognized in classrooms. Well, like just to have their, what, their, like appear in anthologies or have their work? Anthologies, or if it's, you know, if it's in a curriculum and a class, then that's like, so many copies of the book that's going to be ordered, right? All those things, and then hopefully they'll invite them out. Here's three hundred dollars appearance fee, whatever. It's, all the, those it's a legitimizer. Yeah, and I get it. Like I'm, you know, money is good. Yeah. Well, and I think too, like if you have some massive social media following, that can help you get, you know, get some leverage. Right. 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 You know, publishers, especially small publishers, are going to look at that and be like, oh, maybe this yeah, will help yeah, us yeah, sell yeah. books, or yeah. clearly people are tuned in. You know, all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, so, uh, childhood. What do you want to know? I mean, you had an interesting <laughs> one. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. you born in, uh, Seoul? In Seoul. Okay. Uh, we, 
we left when I was like five. I think a little over five. Why? Um, well, it was a mystery to me because I hadn't started school yet. I had no concept of borders or what uh, what another country was or anything. So when my parents approached me about we're moving to Paraguay in South America, I was like, I don't know what you just said to me. <laughs> <laughs> and then I remember them telling me, but we're eventually moving to the U.S., like on that same conversation. I'm like, I, that means nothing to me either. So we, we had to go to South America because it was hard to get a visa to come straight to U.S. at that time. I think there was a strict quota of some sort. So you have to go to another country and sort of legitimize yourself, and then and then legitimize check. yourself in what way? Like I'm a I run a legitimate business. I'm a human being. Oh, okay. All like, those things. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you go to what do you? So you go to your family goes to Paraguay. My dad makes buttons for like five years. Just making buttons in a button yes. factory? No, he ha he had two machines at home. He had these molds, so you just buy plastic and melt it and make buttons. Wow, it's right there in the house. In the house. <laughs> okay, and that's and that's like and then he like establishes that. And how long are you in Paraguay? Uh, almost five years. Okay. Yeah, and, I came to the U.S. when I was ten. And do you have memories? Yeah, and I don't have much memory from Korea. Um, I have scratch that. I have memories from Korea and Paraguay, but. I, it's hard to tell now whether these are memories or like memories of stories that were told to me about yeah. my childhood. It gets it gets confusing. Yeah, you build these narratives in your head, and you're like, yeah. you're not sure how authentic they are. Yeah, I'm like, there's no way I could possibly remember that story in that much detail, right. unless I'm just remembering a story that was told. To right. Me. <laughs> right. Do you speak Spanish still? I speak a little bit. I understand a lot more than I could speak it. Yeah. Um, yeah. But when you were there, you were Yeah, yeah, it was Spanish. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then you get to the states. I mean, anything else happened in Paraguay like like searing memories or like what are the big any big moments in your childhood that happened there that you can point to? Um There were a lot of piranhas in the rivers. <laughs> yeah? Yeah, I actually watched a cow getting devoured by piranhas. <laughs> no shit. Yeah. They can eat a cow? Oh my god, it's what does, the cow, what does the cow do? Freak out? It just, yeah, it just flails until the water turns all red. Oh, my God. Yeah, like we were kids. We were like going on a trip by the river. What happens if a person goes in? You're dead. <laughs> no shit? Yeah. They so, can kill a person. Yeah, we were a bunch of kids. We were following this guide, and they were trying to tell us not to go into the river, not to go into the water, and they literally pushed in a cow to show us why we shouldn't go in the water and we watched this cow getting devoured. <laughs> well, that'll, that'll learn you. Yeah. <laughs> Holy shit. Yeah. How old are you? I was like six or Fuck <laughs> that, man. That's brutal. Yeah. But, you know, lesson learned, I lesson guess. Lesson learned. I didn't get eaten by piranhas. That's not the way I want to go. I, I always say I don't want to go as a meal. <laughs> not knock on wood. That's you know? a good good rule to have. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of ways you can go, but as a meal would not be probably probably one of the least pleasant ways. Yeah. Um, okay. So then you come to the United States. Mm -hmm. You finally reach LA. Valhalla. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like the uh, the promised land. So you get to LA, and you came to Los Angeles. Yeah. Koreatown, okay. LA. And? We stayed on at a family friend's house on Crenshaw and 8th. 
All right. Yeah. <laughs> Easy assimilation? Hard? Um, it was hard. But there is like there's an act. I mean, there's a huge Korean community in Los Angeles. Yeah, but I wasn't. See, I hadn't gone to school in Korea, and so now like I never really had Korean friends. It's like you're like double outsider. Yeah. yeah. So Korean kids didn't want to play with me, and American kids didn't want to play with me because I couldn't speak English. So I would just hang out with the Spanish speaking kids for a little bit. Right. But yeah, it was. You know. It was a weird time. It's a lot for a kid to yeah. move to move countries twice. I mean, moving for children is difficult, and it also, I think, deepens a person or can deepen a person. But like, um, it's tough. I mean, you're moving countries, so it's like a huge culture shock. Yeah, and- I yeah, I think there's definite trauma. You know, um, I don't know where the fuck I am. Everything yeah. looks different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everyone's looking at me different. Everyone, you know. I didn't want to move. I didn't want. I didn't want to move anymore. Like I didn't want to go on trips. It was this thing of like no airplanes. No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I didn't want new people in my life. It was just all kinds of things, and I still have some version of that. Like, like I'll walk into a bar or something. <laughs> There's like a new bartender. I I just freeze. Like, you like, like the familiar. Yeah, I'm like, who are you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you don't know how to pour my whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> and you've been in L.A. your whole life. Yeah. I mean, I moved to New York for a couple of years for grad school, but that's about it. Did you ever – did you get to a point – I mean, obviously, at some point, you get to a, uh, uh, you know, a stage where this becomes home. Yeah. When did it happen for you? Like, how long did it take you to feel like you had finally rooted yourself here? Um, Probably – It was, you know, it was a weird thing. It was probably during the riots. What was that? 23 years ago? You know, it's weird. I talked to David Ulin, uh, the LA Times, uh-huh. his former LA Times critic. Yeah, he's, he's just, oh, yeah, uh, he's he just, just got leaving. bought out. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, he, I, he was sitting here and I was asking him because he's a lifelong New Yorker. Uh-huh. And I was asking him a similar question. You know, when did you feel like you were a Los Angelino? You know what he said? The riots. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> what was it about the riots for you? Um, I felt protective of my neighborhood all of a sudden. Not in a way, in any way like... This is the Rodney King. Yeah. yeah. Not in any way like, hey, get out of my neighborhood. But like this real feeling of like, what's going on to my home? Yeah. And were you scared? Um, No. I wasn't scared, actually. And I think that was another thing. Where you were I, in Koreatown. I, yeah. But wasn't Koreatown getting burned? And, oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. There were, like, fucking military trucks and all kinds of stuff going on. But it was the sense of, like, um, what's happening to my home and also, like, this love and sadness about it, what was going on. And so how long had you been here at that point? That was, so, 12 years. Okay. It took 12 years. Yeah, but then, but maybe, maybe you know, maybe it would it had been happening gradually, and that's maybe when it clarified for you. Or yeah, I think before that it was just like the, my friends. It was like it was never about the context of home, but this I'm always with these kids, so this is sort of where I belong. But I hadn't really thought about the city at all. Yeah. But anyway, having had this experience, um, you know, being a first generation American, is that right? 
I don't even know what the rules are. I think it's if you're the like maybe if you were born here. I mean, who knows? But yeah. you're you're an immigrant and yeah, you yeah, yeah. showed up here. What you were ten, 10 years old? Yeah. Um. I guess the first question I would ask is like, how do you feel uh, about America? Like, has it been a, a good experience for your family? Do you feel like, oh my god, like the alternative would have been significantly worse, or you know what I'm saying? Like. You feel lucky to be here? You know, I ask my parents sometimes, I like, whether they miss Korea, like, whether they wish they had stayed there instead of, you know, this, this subject, I've been thinking a lot about it um, because when I found out I couldn't have kids and my older brother is divorced and he doesn't have kids, it's like, wow, wonder what it's like for an immigrant to go to some other country thousands and thousands of miles away and then realize that their like lineage ends Why can't away you have from kids? home. I can't have kids. You can't? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Oh, after our miscarriage, I went through all these tests and it was like, yeah, you can't have kids. <laughs> oh, wow. So yeah. It's just like some sperm thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, it was like, it, it really made me think about where my, what must be going through my parents' mind, like whether they feel like they ran until they hit the end of the road or if they could whether they would go back and what do they say when you talk about this oh uh, you know it, it's what they say they're happy wherever you know me and my brother are but that's like a weird answer right <laughs> yes and no yes and no. i mean yeah, i can yeah, relate yeah. to that i mean yeah you know. so it's an interesting thing i so i do wonder whether at the end of their time, they'll feel any regret. Well, but you know, I'll say this though: they took a, they took the courageous route and the the route of adventure. Certainly, De- definitely adventure. Yeah, I think that was at the root of it. I think my dad, especially, was like, "I want to see the world. I want to go somewhere where it's not just this small radius around my house." And you know, yeah. So, yeah, that's there. And what about, like, in the context of, like, the modern or the contemporary political climate, uh, the the refugee debate and all this, like, I I feel like there is, like, a really ugly tenor to America right now when it comes to this stuff. Like, as somebody who immigrated to this country, like... It's everywhere, though. I mean, my parents just watch Korean news all the time, and I watch it with them, and just the venom in politics there is, like... In Korea? Yeah, they're just... You know, it's like just like here. They're trying to strip away all the money from regular people and hand it to the same 1%. shit. Same, same human thing. greed. Human greed knows no boundaries. Same damn thing. And then people rising up, protesting, getting beaten, killed, imprisoned. Same thing everywhere. It's like a model. This is the model we sold everybody. <laughs> Isn't it? I mean, like, because that's the thing. Like, you go to Europe and. Um, you know the Americanization of other countries is detectable. Oh yeah, let's blame the Africans. <laughs> the economy's bad. Let's blame the Africans. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> like you know, it's like all these African immigrants are ruining our economy. Oh, we right. got to get rid of them. We got to close the borders right. and all this stuff. Yeah, no, I mean, and it's like I think about that. I think about um, climate change, and I think about the impending. Re- I mean, if you think the refugee crises right now are bad. Wait till like a billion people are displaced and like oh suddenly have God. no place to live. It's going to yeah, be a yeah. shit show. I don't think people are, are realizing. Oh yeah, what's going to happen? Like you're going to all your real estate 
uh, value. If you own a home near the coast, gone. No one's going to insure you. Yeah. You're just going to have to grab your shit and leave and like show up somewhere. I mean, it's going to be a big mess. It's going to be, yeah. Not to depress everyone listening. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be like sci-fi movies, man. Yeah. <laughs> But I mean, like I, I, we say all this and like there is a, you know, especially having lived in other places uh, and been a lot of different places in the States, like Los Angeles is no, it's not perfect, but there is something that makes me proud to live here when I think about um, multiculturalism. I mean, oh, yeah. it's a big soup here and like that's part of what I love about it. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. You know, I think I want to say I read somewhere that there are more cultures represented in Los Angeles County than any metropolitan area in the world. Oh wow! I mean, I would believe it. It's, I mean, yeah, that it might just be a function of the fact that it's yeah. a huge landmass. Yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah. But I mean, that's a, it's. I mean, that's a good thing, right? It is a good thing. I mean, it's a good thing. Obviously, it creates conflicts. It's a good thing. I mean, I love LA. I yeah. love it. This is home. This is home. It's the only place I've called home. But you're now splitting time between LA and Pittsburgh. Yeah, yeah, but you know, it's it's not like we. We're in Pittsburgh because that's where we want to live. It's just her school is there. And your wife? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so she's yeah, getting her PhD. And, yeah, yeah. And that's a long process. Yeah. How long does it take to get a PhD? Her program is a six-year program. In what? In uh, human-computer interaction. Oh. <laughs> Let's see. That sounds good, though. It's the sort of shit you need to know. Yeah. It's a marketable skill. <laughs> yeah. You could create the first like artificially intelligent poet. Well, <laughs> there's so many ways to joke about that. <laughs> That's coming, though. We're going to have just like a, a brilliant poet robot. It should That's be a title of my next book, Artificially Intelligent Poet. <laughs> that sounds interesting to me, though. Like somehow like create some sort of algorithm that just generates poetry, but then you have like this like android that recites it at readings. Yeah. That could be but, a draw. But it's been done already. Has it? Yeah, on Twitter. Right. It's like Twitter bots. Twitter, But I mean, I want this thing to be like ambulatory. Yeah. I want it to look human. <laughs> I don't want to know. You know? I want its like skin to be warm. I know? want some poets, real poets, to be more human. Yeah, right? <laughs> too many too many human poets are like robots, and too many robotic poets yeah. are like humans. Um, okay, so you're in Los Angeles. Uh, it takes you 12 years from the time you're 10. So you're 22 years old when those riots happen, or thereabouts. Yeah. What was that, But what was adolescence like? Did you have... I mean, you had friends... You did assimilate to a degree. Did you have a tough time socially, like feeling comfortable, or? Um, I think it, I, I became a loner, like pretty much. Um, and were people good to you? I don't know. I, they, were, they, I'm sure they were. And you, were, you were closed off. Yeah. And were you? But you weren't close. Like, were you closing off in reaction to people's treatment of you, or were you just closing off because you felt? Like you didn't have a, a footing. Yeah, I just didn't feel a footing. And I didn't feel like... I didn't know whether they told me this is where we were meant to be. I didn't have any trust or faith that we weren't going to move again. You're just waiting for the next, like... Yeah. We're going to, you know... Yeah. The West Indies or wherever. I don't know. Yeah. Oh, my God. Like, a like couple of years after we came to U.S., my parents were wanted to send me to New York to for a few weeks to visit my uncle's house i threw a fit like a crying fit like i was like i don't want to go how you were like 11 years old or something yeah 11 yeah, yeah i'm like i can't do it right and they were like what the hell is wrong with you 
you sissy. <laughs> so like it has nothing to do with traveling alone. I just don't want to go anywhere. Just leave me in my room. Just yeah. let me just stay here. <laughs> it's a rough. It was, it's rough on a kid. Yeah. To move, and I mean to move countries. That's a big mind fuck. Yeah. Yeah. And, like, do you like to do international? Have you ever been back to Korea? Do you like to travel? I internationally? went back once when I was nineteen. So it was right after the Olympics happened in Korea. So okay. I went back and I felt like total outsider there, obviously. Um, you speak Korean? Mm-hmm. Okay. So you, at least you could understand. Yeah, that. yeah, yeah. But it was like basically Yankee go home. Really? <laughs> yeah. That's, is there is, is there like a tension between like, cause you know, there's obviously a lot of Korean American. Yeah. Like, you go back and you're a Korean American. It's like, what are you doing here? Like, do you feel that? Yeah. Huh. There's a lot of resentment towards U.S. Like everywhere else. Right. Um, we've made quite a name for ourselves. <laughs> oh, my God. We've succeeded. Yeah. <laughs> God. Do you ever, but do you feel a sense of defensiveness or pride? Like people start shitting on America when you're in Korea? Oh, I went on total defense mode. Isn't it weird? Uh, after the fact, I'm like, what the hell was that about? Well, no, but, it, but here's the thing. Here's the thing. It's like, it's like, you know, family. Like you can yeah. shit on your own family. Like you can criticize your, your brother, your sister, your mom, your dad. But then like somebody else does it. And all of a sudden, the hackles yeah. go up, you know? And it yeah. feels that same way with America, like, especially if people are getting it wrong or if it just feels like too, I'm always, uh, I get really uncomfortable almost to an extreme degree when people start speaking in anything that even remotely resembles absolutes. Yeah. And it's like, well, come on. It's a big country. Yeah, yeah, There's yeah. a lot of people. The government doesn't necessarily, <laughs> you know, isn't necessarily representative of the wide swath or at least like the best swath of people. So like, I can start, I can find myself wanting to combat yeah. a lot of that. And I was 19. I literally knew nothing. Right. And the, 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 I had zero knowledge about anything. <laughs> oh, yeah. But you're traveling the world. Suddenly like, you're a diplomat. And then all of a sudden I'm defending the country. <laughs> I don't even know what I said to defend it. Yeah. I know. And like, or you can just find yourself agreeing in a way that feels ugly later just to like not have conflict. Yeah. You're like, yeah, it's fucked up. But you know what? Korea's fucked up. France is fucked up. England's fucked up. Everywhere's fucked up. Like you were saying. Yeah. So it's like, you know, I guess America's cultural influence and its financial status and all the rest, like it, it makes it, it, it's a more acceptable target for criticism. Like everybody's got skin in the game when it comes to the United States. Like, yeah. you know, there are countries that are much tinier, like Costa Rica is not affecting the world in the way that the United States policy is. I mean, I think that's pretty obvious. Right, right, right. So I think and it's like even on smaller scale, whenever New Yorkers show up and say something about LA, it's like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Come on, dude. I mean, I see I, those kinds of arguments too. I mean, um, they're vastly different places. Yeah, and that's the that's great. That's the yeah. beauty of it. But I mean, there's, I don't know. Uh, I don't think that. I don't know. They're just different. The superiority argument seems tiring to me. It's very tiring. Yeah, it's very, very, very tiring. So, what's Pittsburgh like? Um, very different than Los Angeles. <laughs> yeah, you know, my experience with the people there have been great. Um, price of things are great. Public transportation I've enjoyed. What do uh, they got there? They got a subway? No, the buses are pretty oh, okay. good. Okay. They have, they do this thing where you could only like get off and get on through the front door. So because of that, there's an understanding. LA is LA people are just terrible at waiting for people to get off things to get on. Like, if you ever ride the subway in L.A., people are just trying to get in while people are trying to get out. There's no, like, there's no, like, uh, decorum or yeah, rules. Yeah, it's like, know? just wait till people get out. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
And so there's this thing, and also it makes you like because you're walking past the bus driver as you get off, you make it makes you say stuff like "thank you" or "have a good day." And I don't know, it's just something that makes me happy every single time. Just the just manners. Yeah, yeah. Just to say, like, you know, there's this sense, you know, we have this sense of like, hey, you're lesser than us or something based on jobs. It's like a weird thing. Like, what do you mean? You know, like the way we treat like servers or yeah your gardener or bus driver or right. things like that you're like oh you must have not gone to college then. right um yeah so it just makes me happy just to communicate like a simple thing like have a good day i know i know like, like i go to certain places in the country like i'll go to minnesota where my wife is from people are so fucking nice yeah. or i'll go back to colorado where i used to live i'm like everyone says hi to you everyone's yeah. sort of in a good mood <laughs> and like I mean sometimes that can be a little creepy they call it Minnesota nice where there's like you know it's like the Fargo thing where there's all this like aggression underneath it <laughs> you know so I, I don't want to paint too rosy of a picture there's always a dark side yeah 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 and it's not even about nice or not I think it's just like exchange of and, like I acknowledge you and you acknowledge me and we could, we'll go on in our lives it's manners yeah basic yeah, yeah, manners yeah. and like it, it is weird I mean, I get it when you're in a big city and there's, like, huge volume of people. Like, you're not going to say hi to everybody you pass. You're going to be, like, a crazy person. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, I mean, if you're isolated or you're walking past the bus driver, like, what? thanks, man. Yeah. Take it easy. Like, yeah, why yeah, is that yeah. so hard? Yeah. You don't get a lot of that in my Every day, like, every day I ride the bus, I go, that was, I, I enjoy it. Yeah. For some reason, I enjoyed that more than anything else. <laughs> <laughs> so you ride a lot in public transport. I haven't driven in like a year and a half. Even is, in LA, I don't. That's I don't weird drive. for a Los Angeles. Yeah, because I was just getting pulled over every time I was in a car. Why? I don't know. You're I'm shitting. the only person I know that's been pulled over multiple times while not driving. I got a ticket once while sitting in the back seat with my family in the car. What did you get a ticket for? Pulled us over. The cop pulled us over right in front of our apartment. He said, I just want to talk to him, pointing to me. I'm sitting in the back. I'm like, huh? He just harasses me until he could find something, and then he realizes my address on my license isn't updated, so he writes me up a ticket for it. No shit. Eventually, I got my license suspended because I, like, I mailed the thing in, but I wasn't supposed to. Like, or some. What the fuck? <laughs> so I just Can you do that? Can you harass somebody in the backseat of a car? Cops could do anything they want. That sucks. Yeah, so I just stopped driving. <laughs> so like, and you get around. Do you read and stuff? Like you produ- is it productive time on like the bus or the yeah, subway? Yeah, so a lot of that Facebook writing stuff was always on the bus or riding the train. And you're on your phone? Yeah. Do you bring like a hard, uh, like a, nah. you know, what do I call it? What do you call it? Old school book. <laughs> no. Nah. It's usually just phone. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, I don't know, That's it. it seems sort of appealing to me to have time. And also yeah. to not have to like be grinding your teeth as you're in traffic, like you just don't, you just ride, yeah, show up. But you can, you need to, you need to know all the schedules and everything. Los Angeles is such a clusterfuck. Like, it, it, you know, if you're trying to get uh, yeah. all the way across town, is it multiple buses and you're doing all that? No, it's like the 720 goes from downtown all the way to the beach. That's it's it. just that sometimes it takes like two and a half hours. <laughs> <laughs> it's a leisurely, it's a leisurely, uh, you know, ride. Yeah. So I don't, yeah, I don't mean to bore people with, uh, I need to figure out public transport. So I feel, cause I feel like I could read more. Yeah. I, I envy people who live in like train towns, like New York and Boston and like people who take the subway. At least you have a, a second to like read a book. Yeah. And you get into a little rhythm that way. But in Los and Angeles. And it's funny, like riding the bus late at night, um, 
because all the kitchen staff from all the restaurants are getting off work. Yeah. So it smells like food. <laughs> people people are fucked up late at night. A lot of that. Um, not not as just... much as I I thought it huh. would be. There's occasionally like somebody. I almost got stabbed once. Okay, I was gonna ask. Like, yeah, is there yeah. anything sketchy happening? Yeah, I almost got this woman like pulled out a big old boning knife and stuck it to my face. Like it was like an inch from my face. If, if the driver had hit a pothole, I would have been. I would have lost an eye. Fuck. <laughs> what was her What was her deal? She was just. Ranting about something, and no I happened real? to be sitting, like right next to the back door. What'd you do? I went into this total calm mode, like just relax, calm down, don't make any sudden movements. This is impressive. Everybody on the bus just like scattered. Like bus drivers couldn't quite tell what's going on, and I just sat there staring at the knife in front of me. <laughs> and then she got off the bus. She didn't do anything. Yeah. And then everybody sat back down. I got home, like crawled into bed. And, you know, my wife was like, hey, how you doing? I'm like, oh, it was, it was fine. I almost got stabbed, but I'm going to sleep. <laughs> you know, it's funny that you say that. When I was first teaching, like literally the first day on the job when I was teaching uh, over at Santa Monica College, uh, some kid pulled a gun on another kid. Oh, uh, yeah. They were like nose to nose and then pulls out a gun, puts it at his head. And the kid just like spun and ran, and yeah. everybody around ran, and I'm standing there, completely frozen, yeah. probably fifteen, ten, fifteen feet away, and the guy with the gun looks at me, tucks the gun into his belt, smiles, flashes a gang sign, and like, ro- like jogs off, and like, I then kept walking, and I was like trying to process, like, and then I saw the cops running, the campus police, and you know, there's all this, you know, all this stuff yeah. sort of happening in slow motion, and. Um, the guy was eventually arrested, I guess. I found out after the fact. But I remember coming home and being like, you know, my wife was like, how was your first day? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, you know, I, I saw this guy pull a gun on some guy and I didn't, I didn't do anything. And I was sort of disappointed in a way. Like I just, I mean, I, on the one hand, I'm happy that I stayed calm. On the other hand, I didn't do a fucking thing. Everyone else had the good sense to run. I just froze. <laughs> <laughs> He's got a weapon. I'm just like, uh, I'm just like staring at him stupidly. I think, you know, it was part of the reason he was smiling at me. Like, dude, what are you doing? You know? Oh my God. I was in shock. I couldn't yeah. believe it. I don't know. I mean, I don't know what you're supposed to do. Right. It's like, I don't know what you're supposed to do. I'm not going to like lose my shit and start screaming. Yeah. That's not my nature. Yeah. And you you don't even do what you want to do. You just, you just react do. in whatever way you're going to react in the moment. Yeah. I think calm when somebody, especially... I mean, anybody who's pulling out a boning knife on a public bus, probably not, you know, dealing with a full deck of cards at that moment. So it's like you're dealing with somebody who's unstable. You know, I don't think that you meet their instability with more instability. Yeah. I remember thinking random things like, oh, that knife looks like the one that so-and-so had when we used to go (laughs) fishing. Like, like random thoughts. Where'd you go fishing? We used to go fishing at, uh, when we first came to the U.S., we go fishing, like, every weekend to Redondo, to Venice, like... Well, like, like, uh, like what do you call it? Sand fishing? Like, uh, off the pier. Off the pier. Yeah. Okay. You catch things? Um, yeah. And would you eat it? Huh. I wouldn't eat anything caught off the pier now, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the water. I don't even like to go swimming. I'm just like, I don't know what to... I mean, I have some mistrust. Like, what's in that yeah, water? Yeah, yeah. yeah you feel that nasty film on plus all the <laughs> plus all the people like all the people there's so many people it's like in the summer you have that many human bodies in that ocean and all those oil and 
shit that people put in the water. I don't know. It yeah. Doesn't, it doesn't seem uh, interesting to me to get in the water. Yeah. Though whenever I do swim in the ocean, uh, I like it a lot and I feel good. <laughs> you you like to swim? I could barely swim. Right now. Yeah, yeah. I'm. The, I just. Yeah, I'm just like don't know how to swim. Oh, so if I dropped you in the ocean, would you drown? Uh, I mean, I could swim a little bit. So okay. you panic? Yeah, totally. Uh huh. But when we were when we were in Barcelona and we went swimming, like I I just couldn't stop swimming in the ocean there. <laughs> you see, you figured it out. Yeah, there was no there were no waves. Well, the waves... water was nice and warm. Yeah, that'll do it. Yeah. But I mean, like you know, you get pummeled by a few waves. It can be uh, a little overwhelming. Yeah. Um, did you not take swim lessons as a kid? Nope. Okay. There's never too late, man. I know. I'm my wife my, is a swimmer. I'm taking. I mean, my, what do you my, mean she's a swimmer? Like she for, she swam competitively like all her life, no like all, all the way through college. Why doesn't she teach you? She has. I mean, the little I swim now is because she <laughs> <laughs> get on my back. <laughs> Yeah, I'm taking my daughter to uh, swim lessons, and they're just like it's like this uh, program. They they throw the kids in, and they do all this yeah, stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's intense. Yeah. I mean, I feel as a parent, you're like, oh, you know, like, but I guess that's how they learn. Yeah. You got to be ready for like, uh, you know, if they get knocked in. I don't remember as a kid being thrown in against my will. Seriously, the two things that two things that make me more jealous than anything is watching people just having a ball swimming. I'm like, ah, yeah, and surfing and dancers. Cause I can't dance. I'm some. I'm sort of the same way. Like I'm I like have, dancers. I'm like ah. I wish I was that person. Right. <laughs> to be that free and like, there's something about it. Like, like in terms of how I'm built at the like the DNA level. Yeah. Versus somebody who is able to dance. <laughs> yeah. Well and freely. Uh, it's a complete. I could not be a more complete 180. You know what yeah. I'm saying? Like I'm just not that guy. Uh, I guess if I'm really drunk. You know, like I can, I can remove inhibitions to a point where like I can make an ass of myself and not care. But yeah. I don't know. Some people are dancers and some people aren't dancers. I think that's okay, right? Yeah, but it just makes me jealous. It makes me jealous, <laughs> but at the same time, I can get a little defensive. It's like I, I, when people are like, "Come on, man, you got to dance." You know, like you, you're not a, like it's like you're not a, a fun person if you're not out there dancing. Yeah, and it's like, oh, hey, I'm fun. I just don't like this particular. <laughs> Kind of fun. I'm I mean, not, I like it. I just don't not a, like me I'm, doing it. I'm not adept. No one needs to see this. It's yeah. Like, come on. You know, you're like at the wedding. It's like, come on, man. Like, you know, join the conga line. Or it's like, no. Like, I mean, I guess I would sometimes, but. Yeah. Um, okay. So, 20s. You're 22. You finally feel uh, at home in Los Angeles. Uh, by this point, are you writing? Yeah, I started writing. Um, when I was 17. What started it? I met this kid at uni high. Um, his name was Corey. Um, and I was that kid sitting in the hallway by himself during lunchtime. <laughs> uh, Cause I was, there, I was going through some sort of awakening of sorts where I'm like, I'm so tired of all my friends. Like, I don't get it. <laughs> I hate who you am people. I? Like, who am I? <laughs> I literally said that to them. Like, I'm like, I, I, re I just realized I hate you. <laughs> what did they say? They didn't talk to me again. <laughs> <laughs> Why did you hate them? I don't know. Were they, were they mean to you? No, it was like we would go out on the weekends or not even on weeknights. Like, we would go, like, steal car stereos and 
things like that. And they would be bringing it to school the next day to sell. And at some point, I was like, I don't like this. You know, um, you're running with like a bad crowd. It wasn't even a bad crowd, like the way you would define it. But I mean, but was it like, could you see yourself on some sort of like longer term trajectory that you didn't like? Was that part of the calculation? Yeah, I think it bothered me that we were doing this when we didn't really need the money either. Right. It wasn't like we're we're all like from poor families and we needed to do this to have money to like eat. Yeah. They just it just made no damn sense to me. <laughs> right. Right. Like why are we doing this other than we you love money? Like <laughs> Right. Um and so after I told them I hate them, obviously I didn't have any friends anymore. <laughs> <laughs> That's one way to get rid of your friends. So I would just sit in the hallway by myself, like eat my lunch. Uh and then I met this kid who also like was sitting in the hallway, and he you met eyes. He said he was taking this poetry class through UCLA Extension, uh, taught by a guy named Jack Grapes. So I tagged along with them, and it was just instantly like, "This is it, change your life." Yeah. So I told him, I said, "I don't have money to take the class, but can I just sit in?" Like, and he it was like. 200 something dollars or he's something. like dude go steal some car stereos i was like i have i have like 60 dollars he's like okay but you just won't get school credit for it i'm like i don't give a fuck about school credit right <laughs> right so that's how and i studied ended up studying with them for like 20 something years no shit yeah so what was it about poetry what was it you said that it was, it. was he it made me feel like i could take the f- small vocabulary i had and say something like I like a, something about a, like a novel was daunting. There was no way I could write that, but I could write a four line poem. I knew enough words to write a four like a four line poem. How how yeah? How strong were you in English in terms of fluency? Um, I was okay. I didn't like, but I had never thought of it as like saying anything more than I needed to say. You know, because um, it was Korean at home. Korean at home. And then English, obviously, at school. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it takes a long time to yeah, yeah, yeah. get, like, super proficient at a language. Yeah. And, you know, even in an immersion situation, you know, like, to to be on par with people who are native speakers, I mean, do you feel like you are now? Um, yeah. I mean, I'm like... You're an American. Yeah. I've written two books. Right. So. <laughs> That's all the proof you need. Yeah. Um... But every so often, people, I was super self conscious about this younger days. Is you have a weird accent, it was like a weird Korean, Spanish, English <laughs> accent. Yeah, so even in grad school in New York, like at NYU, people were like, What is your accent? And I'm, I'm 32 by it, and I'm like, Really? <laughs> I'm like, it's an LA accent. It's, it's an LA. Yeah, right. What it, like I mean, I don't even know how you discover. It's just like a it's a, it's a hybrid. No it's a hybrid. Yeah, yeah. So And so you start studying with Jack Grapes. Um what does he teach you? Like what you know, what does he First thing he said was like, Do you know what a poem is? I was like, I don't know. It's this weird conceptual thing. I don't understand. He's like, it's just a series of lines of uneven length. I was like, perfect. <laughs> that simplified it. I was like, huh, that's it. You're right. That's it. 
so to this day, when I'm in a classroom or something and someone's explaining what a poem is, I just laugh. I'm like, no, it's just you break the lines as a poem. Jesus Christ. <laughs> you uh, you still have any of the poems you wrote in those early days? Uh, some. I lost, I lost like 500 poems from moving. Do you care? I used to care. Um, but I don't anymore. Yeah, it's life. Yeah. Shit goes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What about uh, the flood? What about it? It's long. Yeah, it took me 10 years to write. Okay. This is a poem. It's also the title of your first collection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It took um, you 10 years to write, and it's a 70-page poem. Yeah. And I read you say, I read somewhere where you said that it took you all this time to write, and you finally realized that what it was about was being a kid in your backyard, looking in the window and seeing your dad do the dishes yeah. in the kitchen. Yeah. That's the poem. Yeah. And then I ended up writing this thing that no one's going to read. <laughs> <laughs> a 70-page poem. Yeah. You proud of it? Um, I'm, in a way, like I've learned to look at it as like like a lab experiment where I was trying out different things to learn. But as a poem, I don't know. I don't even know the last time I sat and read the whole thing. So I don't know. Why did it take you 10 years? I was discovering a lot of poets that I hadn't read before, and I think... Assimilating their influences. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And then what about uh, abductions? Abductions took, like, a year to write. Okay, so different experience. Total different experience. And what was that one? What was fueling that? Um, that was being fueled, like, a couple of things. Um, after a, f the flood was done and the book came out, I was like, now what do I do? <laughs> I was like, I'm not going to spend another 10 years right, working on a poetry book. That just makes no sense to me. Right. So I just started reading a bunch of UFO blogs. <laughs> As one does. As one does. And, and then my wife and I got pregnant and we had a miscarriage and that whole thing started. I didn't know how to write about it. I, my wife and I had five oh, in between geez. our two kids, so I, I, yeah, I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah. I know how that is. We, I didn't know how to write about it. Yeah. Yeah. And, it's tough. It's and, a weird kind of loss. Yeah. And and then I started thinking about it as like an alien abduction mythology. Like, all right, the baby was abducted. Like, you know. Yeah. Like in X-Files. That makes sense. Because <laughs> yeah, it's like, what, like was it if uh, it was a person? Was it, was it a, uh, half a person? Yeah. Where is it? Do I really grieve this? Like, if there's some... It's like this, um, I don't know, ghost-like yeah, yeah, yeah. state or middle ground in between existence and non-existence or something. like. Yeah, and then when I started writing about that, I was like, oh, I'm going to create this whole mythology, alien abduction mythology, like our, like my family has a history of it. And then that started, got, that started uh, uh, this whole other path of like thinking about immigration as abduction. Like, I was a kid. They threw me in this vessel. And then next thing I knew, I, I got off and no one looked like me, speaking some language I don't understand. And so it, it helped me, like, look into those things in a way that I hadn't before. I didn't know how to. That makes, you know, that makes a lot of sense. You you have this thing that's like seemingly, like, impossible to articulate. Yeah. Or even understand fully. And then you put it up against this, like, supernatural context or whatever and... Yeah. And suddenly all this meaning starts to flood in. I get it, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's weird because a uh, couple of readings where I would just read it, like, without explaining anything. 
and people have come up to me. There was a reading in San Francisco where someone came up to me afterwards and said, um, I'm an abductee too. And I didn't know how to say, no, that's not. So I just got in this conversation about, she invited me to like a meeting. (laughs) (laughs) Like, no, no. Wow. But like, it's this unexplainable trauma that people are trying to cope with or deal with in some way. And I, I got it. Yeah, I mean, you. I mean, everyone's got. I think everyone has trauma. Yeah, it's yeah, coming yeah. one way or another. Yeah, um, we all have our battles, you know. And uh, it's funny how somebody can read something you write and think it's about something that it's not. You know. Yeah, yeah. It, it yeah. is about, but it's not a, directly about, and they draw their like their own meanings into it. Yeah. Um, and then you retired. Yeah. You did a like you know like you said fifty dates, uh, and burned yourself out <laughs> burned myself out came home pulled a share <laughs> said i'm retired yeah but wrote a lot every day on facebook facebook yeah. status writing and, um, and then you unretired yeah because we had just started our last summer project which was our 90 for 90 project um what does that mean we did 90 different literary events over 90 consecutive nights in one bar at Union Station. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and then who's we? We're writ large? Yeah. So we just, like, programmed the entire thing. It was crazy. That's a lot of work. Yeah. And it was amazing. And you're but, in that bar every night for three months solid. Yeah. And we were still recovering from it. I was going to say. Like, emotionally, we're recovering from it. Like That seems like, that's almost like performance art. Yeah. We got, we were, we've got been going through withdrawals, the whole thing. It's just been <laughs> crazy but one of the first at one of the first events we had a poet Douglas Kearney come and read um, and he's someone that I just looked up to why because um, he, he's an amazing poet yeah. uh, and his performances are amazing and he, um, and he brought his new book Patter and he had a copy of my book I was like wow Doug Kearney has my book Patter is about his he and his wife coping with miscarriage and stuff. No shit. So it was this moment of like, and then it was like, we should read together. I'm like, That's we should. A sign. How I you, can't yeah. say no. This is like a dream project. Right. So yeah. And once that, once I said yes, it was like, well, I'm going to start writing. You know, I, I'm. The genie's I'm, out of the bottle. Yeah. What are you working on now? I just finished Ghostmaker a couple of weeks ago. That's the book I wrote this year and destroyed. So I read it over six different events through the course of the year. So I would read new chapters. There's one copy? None. But I mean, like, you, you destroyed the only copy of the book. Yeah. As I, like would a read, performance I would read, destroy, delete all digital files. And so a couple of weeks ago, I finished the book. And it's gone. <laughs> it's gone. That's kind of cool. But once again, it was about, like, trying to figure out what a book means. Like who carries on the book? So everybody who was there is like, it's in them somehow. Yeah, they'll in some way, some version of it. Yeah. Right. It's interesting, you know. You think about like afterlife. Like I, this is where I am when it comes to like afterlife stuff. I think, at least partially, like the way that we live on is like, uh, obviously, you know, you live on through your descendants if you have them. You live on through the people you teach or the people in your life um, who you know live beyond you. But also, like you know, as a writer. Uh, you write a book, 
somebody reads that book or you give a performance and somebody hears that performance like you are in an in effect inside of them and like you are continuing in them somehow right yeah 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 and it's, it's it was always easier to think of it that way when i was the reader but it was harder to think of it that way when i'm the writer it's just a weird feeling like that what i'm doing survives that way yeah, I mean, because I certainly carry in me, like, all the books that, like, hit me the hardest. Yeah, totally. And probably yeah, just yeah. everything, you know, somewhere in there, everything you ever took in is imprinted yeah, 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 on yeah. you somehow. So right. um, it's kind of neat to think of it that way. I don't know. It seems like maybe the most, I mean, I feel like a, a long-form book project, in terms of how deep it dives into a person's consciousness, like how full of an expression of a person's insides it can present. Um, you know, it's always limited, but I mean, right. compared to other forms of art or whatever, forms of self-expression, like, is there a fuller way to live on? <laughs> you know <what> I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. I yeah. mean, well, I don't know. Maybe someone's like, um, maybe someone's like, a, you know, a crude, like YouTube posts or something over a lifetime or blog posts, like, you know, it'd be like 6 million words or something. And that'll be like the, yeah, you know, that'll be the, uh, the bigger fish. But, you know, I feel like a book is a, is a cool legacy in a way. Yeah, it's just it's in, it's just endlessly fascinating how something you do lives on mm. and through who and all this stuff. And like, I think digitally too, it's like what's going to happen to all this? Yeah. Who's going to be parsing this five hundred years from now? If anyone's yeah, around, yeah. you know what I'm saying? Yeah, like, I was just asking my wife like because our Uber driver had a heavy Southern accent, and they were like, I was trying to figure out what he was saying, um, and I was like, Who do you think was the first person? who spoke in that accent. Right. Like that, that sort of affected everybody around them and it sort of lived on. Yeah, <laughs> even, like, how does it even start? It's like, yeah. I'm thinking of like Louis, like French immigrants and the K, I mean, who knows, man? It's like, <laughs> who's the first human being to like even speak, you know? Like, yeah. Um, well, it's been super fun talking with you, man. Are you freezing cold? You're just, he's no, sitting I'm here. Good. You're good. Yeah. I'm freezing my ass off in here. He's in a t-shirt. <laughs> he's not even human. I don't know how he's doing this. Uh, but congratulations on your unretirement. Uh, congratulations on the books. And uh, I wish you all the best of luck. Thanks for having me. All right, guys. There you have it. That is Chi Wan Choi. His latest poetry collection is called Abductions. It's available from Writ Large Press. You can find him online at chiwanchoi.com. He's on Twitter. His handle over there is at Chi Wan Choi. And, of course, you can track him down on Facebook where he updates his status. You can read his status updates on the Facebook Thank you to Kill Rockstars for the music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget that this podcast has its own official app, the Other People app. It's free. It's available wherever you get you, you know, wherever you get apps. Go get the Other People app wherever you get your apps. It's the best way to listen. Uh, new episodes automatically upload. You can download episodes to listen to offline. The way it works is you get the most recent 50 episodes for free. That's how this program works. You get the most recent 50 episodes for free. So you get the podcast, uh, you get the app. You get the podcast on the app. Do you understand what I'm saying? You get the app. The app is free. The app is on your device. You open the app, and the most recent 50 episodes are there waiting for you. The latest episode will always automatically upload to your app. You don't have to do anything. It just happens. It's more convenient that way. And then if you want to get at the full archives, if you, if you want access to almost 400 episodes and counting, uh, you just sign up for Other People Premium right there within the app. It's the uh, cheapest thing you'll ever do. I don't know if it's the cheapest thing you'll ever do, but it's pretty close. It's 75 cents a month. You get access to everything everywhere you go at your fingertips. The other people premium subscription 
which you can sign up for right there within the free Other People app. Am I making sense? Great way to support the show. Would really appreciate it if you did that. Uh, let's see. Oh, if you want to write me and let me know what you think about the show or tell me a story, uh, what have you, the address is uh, letters at otherppl.com. Letters at otherppl.com. I love hearing from listeners. I should say, too, that I might go back to doing some uh, phoners. I might do some phone interviews in 2016. I've been thinking about it. And uh, I just think, you know, if, it's, if I want to talk to somebody, I want to talk to somebody. If they're not in Los Angeles, I'm just going to talk to them anyway. I hope that's okay. I love doing the in-person interviews. I think the sound quality is a little bit better. I think the interviews are often uh, dynamic because it's two people in a room as opposed to two people on the phone. But two people on the phone can be interesting, too. And I, I just, uh, I'm impatient waiting for certain people to get to Los Angeles. So that might be a small shift, but I, I did that for like the first 350 episodes. So for longtime listeners, it's not going to be that big of a deal. If it's some sort of like, you know, deal breaking tragedy for you that I might be doing phone interviews with people, you can email me and let me know. Please remember that Wallace Stegner died in a car crash and that Frida Kahlo had an affair with Leon Trotsky. That's it for now. I appreciate you guys listening. I appreciate Chiwan Choi for coming over, sitting down and talking to me. Go get his books. Go get some writ large books. Support independent presses. Support independent publishing. Support poetry. Just support. Show some support. Put your money where your mouth is. And uh, I'll talk to you guys again soon. I'm going to uh, go lie down. <laughs>